Jacob has betrayed his older brother Esau for the second time. Having already stolen the lion's share of his inheritance, he has now snagged his father's blessing. This blessing is a concrete promise of wealth and well-being and the assurance that Jacob's family will be the chosen ones who will forever remain in a special relationship with God. But now Jacob has fled and has unwittingly exposed himself to his own medicine. His mother Rebecca clearly learned her tricks from the same place as her brother Laban and it is in Laban's home that Jacob seeks refuge. Here he falls in love with Laban's daughter Rachel and it is here that he finds himself not only tricked by his uncle but lands in the epicentre of a battle for supremacy between two sisters. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 9, Sister Wars. Before we begin, those new to this podcast should be aware that this is the Bible minus the religion. It seems like an important thing to leave out, but it's probably the reason, if you're a non-believer, that you might not have picked up the actual Bible. Here, we're more interested in the story than in directing people how to live their lives. This may seem shocking to some religious people, but do remember, the Bible is everyone's book, not just yours. Feel free to follow us on Twitter or leave a comment at holybible.com. One last thing, the Bible I refer to is the New International Version UK edition published by Zondervan. Laban seems quite open for Jacob to marry his daughter Rachel, especially as his nephew has offered to work for him for seven years in order to pay for her. Better Jacob than anyone else, Laban says. For Jacob, the time flies by, no doubt because he is in the daily presence of the woman who he loves. On the day of the wedding, his uncle arranges a feast. However, Laban proves to be every bit as devious as his sister Rebecca. That night, instead of bringing Rachel to Jacob's bed, he sneaks in her older sister Leah, a woman who the Bible simply describes as having weak eyes. The bonus is that Leah comes with a maid called Zilpah, but she is still no Rachel. The next morning, Laban explains to a horrified Jacob that the accepted code in this part of the world is that you don't marry off your younger daughter before the older one. The lovelorn suitor is now left to finish his honeymoon, then work another seven years for free before he can finally walk away with the bride of his dreams. To his credit, Laban gives Rachel to Jacob at the start of the seven years, not the end, and so he begins married life with two wives rather than one. Laban also throws in another maid for Rachel, a woman called Bilhah. Genesis describes Jacob's love for Rachel as far exceeding his love for Leah, and he sets to work for another seven years to honour the agreement with his father-in-law slash uncle. There's nothing like a bit of sibling rivalry and the battle for supremacy between the two sisters who marry Jacob is one of the most competitive in the whole Bible. Leah cuts a tragic figure. She knows that all of her husband's love is directed at her sister and that she is only in this marriage because her scheming father saw a way of getting his half-blind daughter off his hands. Unloved and possibly envious of her sister, 
Leah's only trump card is her fertility. She gives birth to two sons, Reuben and Simeon, who she believes are compensation from God who has seen how unhappy she is. Reuben's name sounds like the Hebrew for, he has seen my misery, while Simeon means, one who hears. However, once her third son is born, Leah's spirits lift. Rachel has yet to provide her beloved husband with any children. Leah now convinces herself that this third boy will change Jacob's mind about her and that there will now be a connection between the two of them. She names her son Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew for attached. Now on a roll, Leah produces yet another son and is so euphoric that she names him Judah, which translates as praise. Leah now has four sons while Rachel is yet to enter the game. Embarrassed and outshone by her sister, Rachel orders Jacob to give her children. If she doesn't become a mother, she will die, she tells him. Her husband tries to reason with her. It is God who provides children, not him, he says. But Rachel decides to take matters into her own hands. Just as Sarah did with Abraham, she offers her maid to Jacob and tells him to sleep with her. is that if Bilhah is her property, Bilhah's children will be hers too. The plan works, and before long, a son is born to Bilhah. Triumphant, Rachel names him Dan, which means vindicated. Her success is even more satisfying, as it seems that Leah is no longer as fertile as she once was, and has stopped having children. Now openly in competition with her sister, Rachel sends Bilhah back to Jacob and they have a second son, Naphtali. This child's name means struggle and Rachel names him this because she sees herself in a war with her sister, a war which she believes she is winning. Anything Rachel can do, Leah can do too, it seems. If Rachel can involve a third party in producing sons for Jacob, then so can she. She orders her own maid, Zilpah, to sleep with Jacob and immediately scores a win. Pleased with how things have gone so perfectly, Leah names the child Gad, which means good fortune. Not content with just the one son from her maid, Leah has Zilpah go again and this time the result is Asher, a boy whose name means happy. So far, she has six children to Rachel's two, and if nothing else, the victory over her younger, prettier sister can't not help but feel good. Fans of the Netflix hit The Handmaid's Tale will be familiar with a story of how the handmaids Bilhah and Zilpah give birth in Rachel and Leah's laps. This is selective translation. What it most likely means is that the children born to the maids are simply placed in the sisters' laps. There is no suggestion that either of the handmaids lie between the legs of Rachel and Leah while they give birth. By now, Leah's firstborn son Reuben is possibly already a teenager and he brings home some treats for his mother, which his aunt Rachel likes the look of. This is a bizarre episode and not one that is regularly brought out in church services for obvious reasons it genuinely appears that Rachel becomes addicted to hallucinogenic drugs. Those familiar with the Harry Potter books will think of mandrakes as leafy plants whose roots look like babies. 
actual mandrakes are used by the ancients as an anaesthetic, and mandrake is also applied externally to treat rheumatism. But the plant's major attraction for some is that it has a hallucinogenic property. The sisters are either fans of its narcotic effect, or they believe that it aids fertility. Given the context that they are in a war to see who can produce the most children, this might well explain their determination to get hold of the plant. So when Reuben finds some mandrakes and brings them home to his mother, Rachel is keen to get her hands on them too. Leah now has the upper hand and dismisses her sister, asking her if taking her husband isn't enough. Now she wants her son's mandrakes too. It's an unfair accusation. Rachel was always Jacob's first and only choice for a wife, and Leah is only in the picture because of her father's intervention. Showing how much she needs to get her hands on the plants, Rachel offers to swap them for conjugal rights to Jacob. It's a fascinating insight into the relationship, as it seems that Leah needs permission from Rachel to sleep with the man who she is married to as well. The suggestion is that Jacob sleeps with Rachel all the time and only shares his bed with Leah or Zilpah to produce children. Alternatively, it might be the case that the women sleep with Jacob on alternate nights and that tonight is simply Rachel's turn. What makes the story extraordinary is Rachel's desire to get hold of some mandrake at any cost. That night, Leah goes to Jacob and, no doubt sensing his surprise, she explains that she has bought him for the night by giving her son's mandrakes to Rachel. It's unusual language and testimony to the utter absence of romance in Leah and Jacob's relationship. To her joy, Leah conceives, and she assumes that this is a gift for letting Zilpah sleep with Jacob and provide him with heirs. The son is named Issachar, which means reward. Bolstered by her success, she sleeps with Jacob again and produces yet another boy, Zebulun, whose name translates as honour, reflecting the status his mother feels now that she has provided her husband with eight sons. Rachel is lagging behind. So far, she only has two sons, and both of these were born to her maid, Bilha. It must seem to her that she has the same curse as her mother-in-law, Rebecca, and Rebecca's mother-in-law, Sarah, both of whom appeared to be infertile when they married. Her failure is compounded when Leah has yet another child, a daughter named Dinah, whose name the Bible doesn't translate. Finally, Rachel becomes pregnant. Genesis describes how God listens to her and allows her to conceive. She is enormously relieved. God has taken away my disgrace, she says. Keen to catch up with Leah, she names her child Joseph, which means may he add, and immediately asks God to provide her with another son. Rachel does eventually produce a brother for Joseph, a boy called Benjamin, but, for the time being, Jacob's family consists of two wives, two concubines, eleven sons and a daughter. Once his twelfth child is born, Jacob is ready to move his family back home. However, Laban has other plans. After 14 years of dutiful service, 
Jacob asks his uncle if he can finally travel home to Canaan with Rachel, Leah and their children. Laban wants him to stay. He has clearly prospered while Jacob has been working for him. He tells Jacob that he has used divination to learn that it is God who has enriched his life through the presence of his nephew. This may be pure flattery as there is no evidence that Laban is anything but an avowed pagan. But Laban is a huge fan of Jacob and, thinking that money will sway his decision, he asks him to name his wages. It's an awkward conversation. Laban's flocks have thrived under Jacob's care and he is leaving his uncle in a far better place than he found him. But now it's time for him to go alone. He doesn't want money, he tells him. Laban isn't listening. It's what's in it for him that matters and he can't afford to let an asset like Jacob go. He asks him again what it will cost to keep him. Fortunately, Jacob comes up with a compromise. He suggests that he continue tending Laban's flocks on the condition that he can remove every sheep and goat that is speckled, spotted or dark. These animals will be his wages, he says. If an animal in Jacob's care has none of these markings, his uncle can consider it stolen and claim it back. Thinking that he's one step ahead, Laban immediately sets to work removing all the coloured animals from his herds and places them in the care of his sons. He then puts three days' journey between him and Jacob. On paper, it looks like Jacob has been tricked yet again by his devious uncle, as his flock is now entirely white and they are too far from any speckled animals to breed easily. In an early act of genetic engineering, Jacob peels strips of bark from the branches of some poplar, almond and plane trees. He places the branches in his animal's water troughs whenever the strong females are in heat. The animals mate here in front of the branches and give birth to babies with streaks, spots or speckles. How this works scientifically is uncertain. Genesis doesn't go into the details, but Jacob knows to only let the strong females mate in front of the stripy branches. Still, Bible fans have noted that there may be some science behind this after all. The flocks might all be white, but for there to have been speckled or spotted animals among them, there has to be some kind of underlying speckled spotted gene. By ensuring that the healthiest sheep mate, Jacob is upping the odds of producing lambs and kids, some of which will have the required markings. By only mating the sheep and goats born with markings, the white animals will be gradually phased out. The striped sticks may not have been hopeful magic either. They are placed in the trough and, by exposing the bark, they may add medicinal qualities to the water that keeps the sheep healthy. The end result of Jacob's genetic wizardry is that all his weaker white animals are offloaded to Laban, while his flocks thrive to the point that he can afford donkeys, camels and servants. All in all, it's a smart way out of a difficult situation and Jacob becomes a successful herdsman. Connoisseurs of sheep and wool will be interested to know that the piebald sheep known as the Jacob is named after the animals which Jacob bred from Laban's flock. For centuries, Jacob's sheep were used to adorn the estates of Britain's landed gentry as their fleeces were so decorative. 
Jacob remains in Laban's household until he hears God advise him on the next stage of his adventure. By now, Jacob has become something of a big kahuna in the district, and envy sets in amongst Laban's sons. They see Jacob's wealth as something he has robbed from their father, and even Laban's attitude changes towards his nephew. According to the account in Genesis, God then speaks to Jacob. This is his first intervention since appearing at the top of a giant staircase in a dream decades earlier, and the suggestion is that there is trouble ahead. God tells Jacob to return home to Canaan and assures him that he will be with him. Jacob summons his wives to meet him in his fields, a safe space away from prying ears. He tells them a number of things. Their father's attitude towards him has changed, he says. He has worked hard for Laban, but has been repaid with treachery. However, God has been good to him and has allowed him to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, rearing speckled and spotted flocks where once there were only white. Jacob recounts a dream which isn't mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. He sees that the only male goats mating with his flock are streaked, speckled or spotted. In the dream, God reassures him that he is making this happen because Laban cheated him. He reminds Jacob of the pillar in Bethel which he erected in God's honour and orders him to return home. The wives appear to have no loyalty towards their father. They see Laban as a man who has sold them to Jacob and who now treats them as foreigners. Not only that, none of the wealth which Laban has accrued as a result of Jacob's 14 years of labour has made it to either of them. They see this money as rightfully theirs and the suggestion is that they are behind Jacob whichever direction God tells him to take. Without further notice, Jacob packs up his family and begins driving his flocks home towards Canaan. Before they leave, Rachel steals her father's pagan idols, possibly as she believes they might have a financial value. Jacob and his family flee across the river Euphrates and make their way for the hill country of Gilead, which forms the border with Canaan. Laban doesn't hear about Jacob's moonlight flit until three days has passed, giving the escapees a considerable head start. However, Jacob's uncle is determined to track him down, and the pursuit begins. Driving sheep, goats and twelve children is a slow process, and after seven days, Laban and his men finally catch up with Jacob and his family. Jacob has no fighting men with him, just his wives, their handmaids and his children. Laban, meanwhile, has his sons and after seven days of chasing, the men's blood is up. Out of aces and needing to defuse the situation with his furious in-laws, Jacob turns to face Laban. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, for Sleeping Dog, with music by Michael Old. Additional production is by Johnny Hawkins, and the cover art is by Lisa Goff. <laughs>